0: I actually genuinely want to thank the Koch brothers because they have concentrated wealth so centrally that it just makes it easier to take it away. I'm Alex Rorty,
1: and this is part two of Beyond the Bubble's special series about the Democratic Party. And that's Sean McElwee, the co-founder of a liberal group called Data for Progress. He's kidding about the Koch
0: brothers, sort of. I used to have to tax hundreds of thousands of people. Now there's like a hundred with all of it and we can just like, you know, grab it. But, but more seriously, the distribution-
1: If you've heard of Sean, it's probably because of hashtag abolish ICE. That's right, the proposal to get rid of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency.
2: Far left cries to abolish ICE are now going mainstream in the Democratic Party.
1: An idea that's upset Democratic leaders Joining me now, Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth. So no, you don't support abolishing ICE. Uh, I, You know, I, I, I think there's a lot of other things we can do before we get to that point. Um, and one that, if activists like Sean have their way, could become a litmus test for the party's 2020 presidential primary. We need to rebuild our immigration system from top to bottom, starting by replacing
2: ICE with something that reflects our morality.
1: Sean didn't come up with the idea but arguably more than anyone else, the 26-year-old has pushed it into the mainstream. Data for Progress is influential enough that the weekly happy hour they host in New York features up-and-coming liberal Democrats, including our guest on part one of The Way Back, Carrie Evelyn Harris.
0: So, like Data for Progress, I think, is a think tank that is really dedicated to like, so sort of the future of the Democratic Party. And we sort of want to be on the foreground of the battle over ideas. You know, I'm not afraid to say what ideas I like and what ideas I don't in pretty strong words. The questions we'll explore this episode will make some Democrats cringe to say
1: nothing of Republicans. But how far left can someone like Sean push the Democratic Party on ice and a whole lot more? And why would he do it in the face of his own party's objections?
2: More Democrats are getting in line with that. Kirsten Gillibrand today, saying we need to abolish ICE.
0: Well, I hope they keep thinking about it because they're gonna get beaten so badly. You get rid of ICE, you're gonna have a country that you're gonna be afraid to walk out of your house. Mm -hmm. I love that issue if they're gonna actually do that.
1: This is the Democrats' way back, according to the activists. Look,
0: when you're the sole Executive director of a Leninist style think tank. You've got a lot of weight on your shoulders. Uh, (laughs) You've got to find rest where you can get it. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Leninism in the think tank world. I think. You know Theta Scotchpole? Mm -mm. Everyone thinks, like, when I say this, like, oh, Sean's some sort of radical. Theta Scotchpole, Harvard scholar, did a study of the Koch network, and she said that the reason it was more effective than the progressive think tanks is because of the Leninist structure. It gives them. Sort of marching orders. Huh. In the age of Donald Trump, there are no shortage
1: of ideas for what the left should do next, including some wild ones. The government actually taking over healthcare, spending hundreds of billions of dollars to guarantee every working-age citizen a job, or hey, how about outright canceling student debt? At least within the Democratic Party, those ideas haven't been widely adopted. But thanks to activists like Sean and Jess Morales-Riquetto, we'll speak to her a little later in the episode, the ideas she and Sean talk about aren't that crazy anymore, starting with abolishing ICE.
0: Abolish ICE is about ending deportation, specifically. And I think staking a claim that the Democratic Party, the next time it has power, has to take much more seriously the danger and the threat to people in America and also American norms that the mass deportation machine that is currently operating poses. So I think that there's a lot of instances in which like you have ICE detaining journalist Manuel Duran We
1: turn now to the story of a prominent Latino journalist in Memphis detained by immigration officials after he was arrested while covering a protest against immigration detention outside a county jail. Manuel Duran, who was...
0: You have instances in which ICE has, you know, attempted to sort of weaken the authority of elected politicians. Um, Like, there was an instance um, in which politicians have, you know, told their constituents, you know, ICE is going to be doing a raid.
1: An urgent warning about imminent ICE raids from the mayor of one of the Bay Area's biggest cities. Yesterday, I learned information from multiple sources that there is potentially an ICE activity planned in the Bay Area. It is not my wish to panic people, but to ensure that they're prepared with information.
0: ICE does the raid, um, but then sort of undermine that Democratic politician's right to speak to the, their constituents about you know dangers that they see.
1: I think it's outrageous that a mayor would circumvent uh, federal authorities and certainly put them in danger by making a move uh, such as that, and that's currently under review uh, by the Department of Justice. And I don't have
0: any. So there's that, but there's also a sort of political side of ICE, which is that abolish ICE, which is that the Republican Party has shown that it is not a good faith negotiator on issues of immigration, and the next time that we have a chance to pass immigration reform, it will almost certainly be under a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate and a Democratic President. And so I think that the progressive argument is that if we're gonna have to do this under a Democrat, mm-hmm. we should be making demands. Like We shouldn't start with the Gang of Eight compromise because Republicans are not you know, there to compromise and now I'll tell you from firsthand conversations I've
1: had with Democratic leaders and strategists, there might be no policy proposal from the left that causes more heartburn. But the idea is a reflection of a new breed of politics driven in part by a simple vision, not repeating what Sean says are the mistakes of Barack Obama. It's true that a lot of the noise around the health care debate ever since we tried to pass this law has been nothing more than politics.
0: You know, the next time there's a policy opportunity, we should really go for the full realization of what we want.
1: We've also always known and I have always said that for all the good that the Affordable Care Act is doing right now, for as big a step forward as it was, it's
0: still just a first step. I think that we saw with healthcare, you know, we didn't get the full realization of what we want. We didn't get the public option. And now 10 years later, we're going to have to be back at the table, passing another healthcare bill. We should have done that. And the next democratic president should be like, all right, well, we solved healthcare, like let's solve climate, let's solve immigration. And instead we're sort of having to keep going back to the table because we didn't sort of become full policy maximizers the way we should be. I mean, we're talking
1: seriously about issues like single-payer health care is, is a mainstream position.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a pretty dramatic change yeah, for the yeah, party. I think there's no doubt that there's been a sort of two things, seeing the sort of reaction to Obama's, uh, you know, center left. They are good policies that have made the world a better place, but they are like treated as like full-on socialism. And so I think a lot of progressives are like, well, we don't actually gain a lot from doing this sort of song and dance. And then the second thing was the sort of Republicans doing the opposite and being like, no, like we're not gonna talk to you, we're not gonna work with you. We have our agenda that we have decided on, and we are gonna be policy maximizers. In my case, progressives should do the same thing. We should spend these times when we're not in power Going through the different ideas we have Medicare for All, Green Jobs, Comprehensive Immigration Reform, Abolishing ICE, let's go through those ideas and let's get a sense of like what is the agenda that we can put on the table and start working on in 2020 when we actually have the power to do it. I mean one thing that So to recap some of the broad points. First,
1: Sean is insisting on no compromise with Republicans. This is a staple of that sort of thinking on the left that a Republican party led by Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell needs to be cut out of the decision-making entirely. Second, once that happens and Democrats don't have to compromise across the aisle, the next wave of Democratic policies can change. A lot.
2: A single-payer health care system would save the average family significant sums of money.
1: It's happening on the left already in the debate about something like single-payer health care which just two years ago looked like a Bernie Sanders fantasy.
2: And what Republicans sometimes do is confuse the issue. They say, well, you're going to pay more in taxes. If you look at candidates...
1: Now a handful of Democratic candidates for the House last election, even those in the battleground districts, adopted it. And even the quote-unquote moderates now talk about health care as a right. Some potential presidential candidates, like Elizabeth Warren, have already signaled their support for it as well.
0: I think every option needs to be on the table, and single-payer sure ought to be at the top of the list.
1: And it should go without saying that two of the insurgent candidates who had the most success this year, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Ayanna Pressley of Massachusetts, were equally as uncompromising about single-payer health care.
2: I think at the end of the day, we see that this is not a pipe dream. Every other developed nation in the world does this. Why can't America? Why is it that our pockets are only empty when it comes to education and healthcare for our kids? Why are
1: It's po- traction like that that gets Sean talking seriously about a list of ideas that, until very recently, lived on the far left fringe.
0: You have to deliver immediate benefits that people recognize so that they have a political stake in keeping those benefits and are ready to vote for them and protest for them. I mean, You mentioned
1: reparations. Do you think like something like that really can and will become part of the discourse in the Democratic Party? I'm not saying that all Democratic politicians would support it. But do you think that this becomes sort of a reasonable policy proposal within I would say the Democratic that, Party?
0: I would say this look like... It was, you know, modestly above water with, you know, the youngest cohort. I mean, it's worth noting that the median senator is still 64 years old. Um, So this is a long term process. But before ideas like reparations get on the table, I think you're what you're really going to see is like ideas like Medicare for all ideas like, you know, in, in Washington, there's an initiative right now, initiative 1631. 1631 wants to combat climate change. Big polluters like the oil industry and utilities would have to pay a fee for the amount of carbon they release, a fee that goes up every year. Now supporters say those- And I think that that fits a lot of the mold of what young progressive want, which is, they want policies that people see the direct benefits right now. They wanna see a sort of screw your foes, favor your friends type of thinking about politics, which is, Oil and gas companies are very bad, so let's take their money and then favor your friends. Let's give the money to the communities who are being affected by climate change. And that also seems like a big part of this, that the the sort of like classic suburban
1: moderate Republican that Democrats have really kept at the top of their minds for decades
0: That's just not where the the, the consideration is anymore, at least not as much. Yeah, I mean, the joke I've always made on this is, you know, if Tom Carper wants to get closer to public opinion, he should abandon his proposal to cut Social Security and embrace abolish ICE. Like abolish ICE is not a popular idea. Hmm. Um, I don't deceive myself into believing that. Uh, But it is more popular than cutting Social Security is. What do you do about gun violence? Um, I think all the stuff that you see candidates running on are stupid, very dumb. Explain that. I saw weapons bans, not going to do much. Uh, Banning high-cap mags, you know, sure, do it. But, like, what we really need to do is we need red flag laws to get the guns out of the hands of people who are, you know, close to committing violence. Uh, We need to intervene in the lives of people who could become part of a cycle of violence. And we need to invest in crisis trauma centers to make sure that people who are shot don't die. Can I go through just some rapid fire on some issues, get your reaction?
1: current college debt. I'll cancel it. Just Just get rid of it. Yeah. Flick of the wand. Like statehood for Puerto Rico or D.C., I take it.
0: Oh, love it. You're being a a centrist. Uh, Bring in Guam. (laughs) Honestly, I think places where there's a significant U.S. military presence should have, like, five to ten electoral bo- college votes a pop. Like, the, the people of Afghanistan have far more to lose and gain from American presidential elections than anyone who lives in Minnesota. Let, let the- Sean even had a generous idea for how and where some of the nation's GDP can be spent. To be clear, I support the United States giving something like 5% of GDP to climate change abatement. I'm being a squishy centrist there when I speak for the left, uh, 5%, you know, there are people who want more, I'm sure. Look, all of this is a
1: lot. And to be fair, Sean admits that not all of this is going to happen anytime soon in the Democratic Party. But there's one more thing to know. The activists driving this move to the left have thought about the politics of their movement, and they've thought about it a lot.
2: I'm Jess Morales-Riquetto. I'm the political director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance.
1: The National Domestic Worker Alliance represents house cleaners and nannies. And Jess is a veteran activist here in D.C. And she, too, has a theory about why the uprising among Democrats needed to happen.
2: We are actually talking about a politics of possibility on the left. We are starting to advocate for things that, you know, a long time ago people said weren't even possible. And the people who are powerful, the people who really have kind of the pulse and the energy are often the people who have been the most marginalized.
1: Before joining the NWDA, Jess worked on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and on the 2012 Obama campaign. So she's an activist, but she knows what it's like to try to win over real voters in a general election.
2: They want health care. They want prescription drugs to actually be affordable. They want to be able to care for their children. Um, and that is the kind of thing that more and more sort of the longtime Democratic operatives and candidates are really going to have to embrace. And if they don't, they're going to get voted and this out.
1: Is, that's something interesting. You think the way the Democratic Party has been construed, there are a lot of people who vote Democrat, but they don't necessarily ve- feel very strongly about it. Absolutely. So your solution then is, well, let's start giving the things they actually want. Absolutely. This sounds to me like, I mean, what you're advocating for is a shift from something that is kind of concocted in a focus group to something that comes from people's lived experience. I mean, am am I characterizing that fairly in your mind?
2: Yeah, I call it, um, I think sometimes we've suffered from an epidemic of big data and little brain, right, so.
1: Tell me more about that, (laughs) tell me more about that.
2: You know, I spent a long, I spent, a decade of my career working on the kind of digital tech and data sides. There's uh, an avalanche of anecdata that's coming forward from field organizers or activists or just run of the mill voters who are saying, I really support X candidate, but I want you to know that you're doing something wrong. And we have traditionally, I think, on the left, sometimes said, well, that one story or that little antidote or like that person that you heard They're like a crazy person, you know, they like only represent themselves. Well, now those crazy people are the majority of the party. And what they're saying is, I'm telling you that in my community and for me, this is what's real. So what we have to do is really figure out how to combine that data and the heart that exists together. And I think the people who have been able to do that are the ones who have really been on the pulse of what's happening and really been able to lead over the last year. And we've seen that sort of come up over and over again when we really motivate people, when they understand what the impact is, People will rise up and do unprecedented things, and there's almost anything you can ask them. But when you ask people to do stuff that they know doesn't make a difference, and frankly, in a way that has nothing to do with their life and what's actually happening, yeah, you're not gonna get great results. What would be an
1: example of that? I mean, what-
2: yeah, you know, I think that, A lot of times people, even when you're going to have conversations to vote, right now um, for Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Karen Action, which is the political arm of the domestic worker movement, is running one of the largest canvases in the state. And consistently, every single day, we are talking to voters who say, no one has ever come to my house. Ever. (laughs) They've never known a canvasser. We actually, we had a guy who ran out of his house and said, are you... Here for Stacey Abrams, and we said yes, <laughs> and he said I've been waiting for someone to come.
1: I mean, do you think that there is? I mean, some mayor? I mean Democrats right now, even even some Democrats, even Democrats in battleground House districts, are talking about something like single payer health care. That seems symbolic of the kind of sweeping change that your wing of the party not just wants, but thinks is necessary.
2: You know, like today, the folks who are leading are women of color. Tarana Burke, Fatima gras Graves, who's the head of the National Women's Law Center, survivors themselves. We have a woman named Daniela who's coming to tell her story of sexual harassment. And that's just one issue, right? Now there are a host of other issues where, on immigration, on healthcare, on a minimum wage, where we really have moved the conversation forward. But we still don't have leaders who are ready to embrace that at a policy level and really be our champions and make sure that this legislation goes through.
1: I mean, you, you worked on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. I'm yeah. guessing you're eager to to win. I again.
2: am. I am. And I think that now we are both embracing the fact that public opinion and history are really are on our side. We're marching forward on progress at a rate that actually, you know, it, it's hard to believe it in this time, but really is unprecedented. At the same time, we also Need to really appeal to the values and the and the urgency I think that people have right now. You know, if you look at numbers around who supports the Democratic Party, um, even people who traditionally vote Democrat. So these are people who are saying every time I go out to vote, I am putting my name next to the D. They don't. It's not because they identify with the Democratic Party. The level of support is really, really shallow. But what they do identify with are
1: the issues. When we talk, Jess had no shortage of thoughts on how Democrats can best succeed politically in the future, even if it means going about things very differently than her old boss, Barack Obama. I I think when a lot of people hear this, I think there would be an assumption of, oh, you know, Jess, you're talking about the sort of approach of Barack Obama. He was, after all, in 2008, he was the liberal choice over Hillary Clinton then, and certainly a lot of liberals and activists still personally like Barack Obama but it's more complicated than that.
2: President Obama and sort of the leadership of his apparatus did make a very bold and somewhat controversial choice. And that was to host Organizing for America, which was for people who were affiliated with Barack Obama and not necessarily with the overall apparatus of the party or the left. Um, And I think that that choice has really led the way for what we see right now, which is sort of like a cult of personality or people who are following a charismatic candidate that isn't building the infrastructure that we need. We were really successful in electing President Obama two times, which means that for the last decade, the sort of Obama wing of the party has been moving an agenda and moving candidates under the guise of Barack Obama as an individual, not under the Democratic Party or even sort of like the left writ large, if you activate a ton of new voters and then you tell them, don't go here, come with me, without understanding that ultimately that president can only serve two terms, it's a huge problem.
1: You're talking about reorienting the party around ideas. Absolutely. And to do that, those ideas can't be milk toast.
2: No. And you know what? I'm sympathetic. It's hard because the party really is a big tent, you know. I think people think that that's like something that Tom Perez says to like make people feel better, but it actually is true. <laughs>
1: sure, <laughs>
0: sure.
2: You know, you have Barack Obama voters, Hillary Clinton voters, Bernie Sanders voters, and then people who don't affiliate with those folks at all and they exist in every state, they exist in every congressional district, they are reliable Democratic voters plus all of the new energy that's happening. You might have decades between those people. Their education levels veer wildly, what actually activates them to vote veers wildly. It is really difficult to find something that both inspires, includes, and actually impacts every single one of those people. Mm -hmm. So I am sympathetic to the challenges and If you take away ideology from the party, which we have done for the last decade, what you're left with is a party that it isn't clear what they stand for. And that's what we hear over and over again. And frankly, that's what the data is bearing it over and over again. People think Democrats are a blank slate.
1: And you think that's because for almost a decade, what people thought of when they thought of a Democrat was just Barack Obama.
2: Yep. And it was wrapped
1: up in his personality.
2: Sure. Or even maybe, maybe... You know, as we got to the end, maybe they weren't thinking Barack Obama, and they're just thinking hope and change or not
1: Republicans. (laughs) Right. Right. Not Republicans wasn't enough in 2016. No, it wasn't. On the next episode of The Democrats Way Back, we sit down with centrist Democrats for a look at how the center left wing fits into the Democratic Party.
2: The loud voices often get the most attention. And there are folks who are very, very loud on the far left.
1: We'll talk with Third Way's Lene Erickson and Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes.
2: It really requires people to care a lot more about what the loudest, most activist folks within a party care about than what the general population of that party might care about.
1: Thanks very much to Sean McAwee and Jessica Morales-Riquetto for joining me here. And thanks to Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn for producing this special episode of Beyond the Bubble. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Alex Rorty, and you can reach me anytime at arorty That's A R O A R T Y at mclatchydc.com. I'll see you tomorrow.